Welcome to Theosophia, a podcast for women's voices in theology. I'm your host, Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this week on the show, we have a dear friend and colleague of mine, Megan Black. Megan is the National Clergy Organizer for Faith in Action, which was formerly called uh, PICO National Network, a multi-faith and multi-racial network of faith-based community organizations committed to ending racial inequality and economic injustice in our communities. Megan earned her undergraduate degree from the University of Notre Dame and a Master's of Divinity from Vanderbilt Divinity School. As a national clergy organizer for Faith in Action, Megan helps lead clergy training and formation initiatives. She develops and sustains religious partnerships and integrates theological frameworks into public campaigns. Her career has included advocating for interfaith literacy, combating predatory lending practices, expanding opportunities for people returning from incarceration, and trying to mitigate the effects of gentrification on communities of color. Megan is originally from Iowa and now lives in Kansas City, Missouri. In this episode, Megan and I chat about her life and upbringing in the Catholic Church and why she chooses to stay in it. We also explore her racial and spiritual identities and call to ministry as a layperson. I can't wait to share this one with y'all. Hope you enjoy. Here is Megan. Okay, so Megan, we went to Vanderbilt together. and But what's cooler about our friendship is that we went to undergrad together, we but did we to didn't know it. Nope, sure did Do you remember the first time we made this connection at Vandy that we both went to Notre Dame? I don't quite remember it. But Not I know either. there. I'm sure it was a beautiful moment of like physical and emotional and spiritual embrace. I vaguely recall us being like downstairs in the field ed classroom. That seems right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all I can remember. And then from then on, the next three years, we were just kind of the assholes from Notre Dame that made sure everyone knew about it. Yeah. We're but not really, because I think... Well, both of us cool. have, I think, fairly trenchant critiques of our time at Notre Dame. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we would kind of be assholes to each other about it. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, we kept it to ourselves. Yeah. But not many uh, Notre Dame folk go to Vandy, so that was pretty cool. And we graduated the same year, right? You're 08? Yeah. No, I'm 09. I was year Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So let's talk about your background, Megan. Where are you from? Uh, I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, which is the second largest city in Iowa. I don't know why we dare to call places in Iowa cities, but we do. <laughs> so um, I'm from there. It is actually just a very large town. Mm-hmm. It was a good place to grow up, though. Yeah. And you grew up Catholic, right? Born and raised, yeah. My mother comes from a very Catholic family uh, out of Nebraska, and my father comes from a Pentecostal Black church tradition family in Illinois. But he converted when I was converted as a term. It's not theologically correct, but um, he yeah. joined the Catholic Church when I was twelve, and so um, and had been coming to Mass with us, or you know, for the twelve years before that. So we were effectively a, a very, very Catholic family. Mm-hmm. 
And how did you experience that? Did you guys go to mass all the time? Like how integrated was the Catholic faith for you growing up? Yeah. I actually wrote my master's thesis uh, at Vanderbilt on this topic. Really? Okay. <laughs> I did, yeah. I, because it was a formative experience for me as a child, m- my mother, as I said, we'd gone to Mass every Sunday growing up. Um, for the most part, she was a pretty faithful, devout Catholic. And my dad, um, when he underwent the process of joining the Catholic Church, which is called RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults, Mm-hmm. Um, that was really a watershed moment for our family. We became a much more um, devout family, which meant that, you know, before I remember waking up as a kid and every Sunday, you know, kind of hoping that this would be one of those Sundays where we didn't go to church and we just all slept in and then had pancakes. <laughs> and then after my dad joined the church, like that was a futile hope. Like we were definitely going to church that Sunday, oh. abandoned all hope of pancakes and sleeping in. Dang it. And there went, we put up rosaries in every, or sorry, there were crucifixes in every um, room of the house after that. We were doing rosaries around the mm-hmm. table as a family. So, wow. um, so yeah, it was, but really it was his joining the church and them kind of recommitting as individuals and as a couple to being Catholic together mm-hmm. that um, really suffused our family with this kind of deep expression of Catholicism throughout Mm -hmm. and it was very I was 12 13 years old at the time going into middle school I had having come up in Catholic education and just remember being completely baffled that all of a sudden they had fallen so like in love with this Mm -hmm. like we've been doing this for years and so what was different now and that question of what was different now what what did they find to love in the church mm-hmm. um really animated my experience of high school in the catholic high school and drove me into theological studies in undergrad as well yeah so what it what was it then what what captured your your folks so much oh man um i think that I think they found a, they'd had a fairly tumultuous early couple of years in their marriage. Like they married very young um, and in part because they were pregnant with me. And so then at, you know, 22 years old with a, with a baby um, had to figure out their whole lives and they came from very different backgrounds. My mother is white and my father is black. And so not only did they have to kind of mm. become adults together, but they also had to become adults out of these radically different backgrounds. And, um, you know, my, my father was the first black man that my mother had ever met. And so culturally they were just in two totally different worlds. She grew up in a small town in Nebraska. Right. And I think, um, their shared practice of the faith, this is how I experienced it, that their shared practice of the faith was, um, a binding agent, right? Like it brought them together across um, these very vastly different um, backgrounds across this chasm of of difference. And so I experienced faith as this great unifier um, Mm. and this way to help us form a single coherent family unit. Um, And it was quite devastating (laughs) when I discovered in college that actually faith could just as easily mm. be a horribly divisive right. um, force in the world. But, but, you know, until that point, I experienced it as this thing that bound us together. And I found that to be really beautiful mm-hmm. and um, 
compelling. And it was a power that I, like, even at that age, I sensed that there was a power at work here that I wanted to tap into for myself. That's that's so beautiful. That's the exact word I was thinking of the whole time you were talking. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. There's, I might, if I can add one more thing, you know, growing up biracial, um, in a white environment, I, the, the, I didn't have a lot of access to forming my racial identity. Like other people spent a lot of time trying to define it for me (laughs) and I didn't have enough resources around me to be able to, um, kind of, you know, put my foot down and say, no, this is who I am, um, around my racial identity. I do now, but at the time I didn't. And at the, what I did have access to was a religious identity and all the resources I could possibly desire to craft a, a solid religious identity. And so for much of my life, um, the way that I understood myself was as a Catholic person. Mm-hmm. And then eventually that became as a Catholic woman. And then that became as a Catholic woman of color. And so there's been this kind of gradual sifting through of these different um, layers of identity. But as a child, I remember it felt so important to be a good Catholic because that was something I knew how to be. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to be a black person or a black woman or a white person or a white girl. You know, I didn't know how to be any of those things. I didn't have the resources around me to craft those identities. So, Mm -hmm. so it's also important in that way. Yeah. But it's kind of cool in a way that, your central identity growing up was your faith. Yeah. You know, like Paul says in Galatians, you know, there's neither male nor female, Greek or Jew, and kind of getting rid of our social categories and that what defines us all and brings us together is this one belief. Our our relationship to God. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Absolutely. That's so beautiful. But also, you know, being of this world, it is also important to have identity and those other things like our, our race and our gender um, and helpful, right? Yeah. When did you, this is kind of off topic of what I thought about, because I didn't know if you wanted to talk about being biracial, but I think it's a really important thing to consider in terms of your theological lens, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but when did that start forming for you? Uh, by the time I got to high school, and to a certain extent, while I was also in middle school, I, it was pretty clear to me that I wasn't white. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I asked the question a yeah. lot, like, when did you realize you were black or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, there was never really... Um, it, there's not like a moment, but I, I actually had this conversation with my mother the other day. Um, my parents were... It was very hard for them to make the decision to send us to an all-white uh, to a Catholic school because they knew it was going to be an all-white experience for us. Mm. And, um, and I appreciate now in a way that I haven't always how much thought they put into that. And so my dad, knowing how hard it would be for us, did a really good job of, of resourcing us as much as possible in our house with um, books and dolls and toys and um, cultural par- paraphernalia, all of these things to remind us that we were black. So I had my Kwanzaa books. And if I got a Cabbage Patch doll, I, that Cabbage Patch doll would, would, if I got one that was white, I would get one that was black. If I had a black Barbie, I would get a white Barbie. Like, <laughs> there was always kind of equity <laughs> in terms of the toys I had access to. And um, we had the, an encyclopedia of African-American history, and every now and then my dad would pull them off the shelves, and we would flip through them. And 
look at the pictures and talk about what was going on there. And I read uh, Alex Haley's Roots when I was in sixth grade because um, my dad, it was like this big kind of gifting thing. And so, um, and he was very careful to explain like, this is part of our history. So I had known, I knew this was a part of my story in a way that it wasn't a part of others, but I didn't know how to live it. And um, that wasn't really an issue until maybe middle school. And then in middle school, I started to notice just people treating me a little bit differently, um, talking about me a little bit differently. I struggled with how to do my hair and, um, you know, all these, all the things that kind of accompany that. By the time I got to high school, it was really clear that, um, that I, I had some formation work to do that, like, mm-hmm. I, I, that there was a way that the world saw me that mm-hmm. I hadn't yet totally understood or excavated. Mm-hmm. And so my, uh, I remember actually it was Mr. Kramer was our guidance counselor and who also taught me driver's ed. And he came to me um, during my junior year and he said, I think you should apply to this program. And it was a, a pre-college program at Notre Dame for African-American, high achieving African-American students. And I had just never, I mean, I knew I was black and I knew that people saw me that way, but I didn't realize, um, I, I was kind of touched that Mr. Kramer thought to pull me out and offer this to me. Like I didn't realize that people were thinking about it as an opportunity necessarily. And so, um, and I remember one being, uh, touch that he had thought to do this. And then the second thing being terrified at the idea of spending time around 39 other black students when I'd never been around black mm. children my own age before. And mm-hmm. I didn't think, I wasn't sure that we would have anything in common or that I, I was worried that they would see through me, that they would see that I was um, white somehow, even though I didn't see myself that way. And so I went and did that program and um had the time of my life, it changed my life, um, spent time around these other um, black and biracial students from all over the country, some of whom are still among my best friends, um, and uh, finally realized that there was, um, that I needed to uh, intentionally find ways to become, like to be black. Um, mm-hmm. So I remember my senior year of college, my decision was wherever I go to college, I'm only going to hang out with black people <laughs> because I need, I've had 18 years to, to, to spend time around white people and figure this side of me out. I need as much time as I can. I need 18 more years around black folk to figure mm-hmm. out what it means for me to be black. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's essentially what I did when I went to college, I walked onto the rowing team and spent a year on the rowing team and left because the rowing team was all white and I didn't Mm -hmm. have time to spend with my black classmates. Mm -hmm. And so of which I had started to build those relationships. And so I remember thinking, these are not the people I came to college to spend time around, although they're wonderful. I came to spend Mm -hmm. time around black people. And, and so the bulk of my friendships from undergrad are all um, in the black community and have been since then. Wow. That's, that's so comparable to my experience at Vanderbilt having Mm. never, ever lived in an LGBT community. Mm. I did the same thing, kind of. I mean, I I purposely sought out the LGBT community and spent a time with them because I I'd been doing it on my own for since I could remember and it was yep. lonely and yep. it just feels so nice to be around others that share your experience. There's just something about that that you can't 
make up for. And now that I'm back home in Oklahoma in this very heteronormative, you know, all white, you know, um, space, I'm so thankful for that time I got to be kind of nourished and fed by my queer yes. community. Um, I'll never forget. And brought into a deeper understanding of yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the other part of it is it's like, it holds a mirror up so you can see yourself right. more clearly. Right. Oh, that's awesome. So the other question I really want to get after you at is ministry and tell, mm-hmm. tell the world, and I'll put this in your intro, but what, what work are you doing right now? You're working for a Catholic uh, nonprofit, right? No, actually founded by a Catholic. It's now multi-faith. Okay. But I can, I can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the question of ministry has been an interesting one for me. There's a little bit of backstory there, if you don't mind me sharing. Yeah, of course. Of course. So, um, I studied theology in undergrad and had a few kind of transformational experiences and realized I wanted to spend, it would be amazing to be paid to ask questions about God. (laughs) Um, But I was pretty clear that I didn't really want to become an academic. And so I was looking for other ways to do that. And so um, I did a year of service after I graduated, which was a powerful experience. It was social service, but realized that I wasn't quite being able to ask the questions I wanted to ask. And so kind of by, I just started to sort of jump around to other organizations and other spaces and try to figure out, is this the space where I can ask the questions I want to ask? And I went from my um, social service organization to an interfaith advocacy group, which was a little bit closer to what I was looking for, and then ended up in Kansas City, um, working with a community organizing group uh, that was doing a lot of work around healthcare and immigration reform, and also trying to cap predatory lending pra- or, and predatory lending practices in Missouri. And they were doing it by working with faith communities and with clergy. And I um, was really compelled by uh, like what's that conversation look like within a faith community? Catholics tend to be a little removed from. Um, like actively political or social justice type of things. We're very good at charity. We're not always good at raising, creating tension and raising a ruckus about social justice issues unless it's abortion. Um, and uh, so I wanted to know, like, h- how do people have conversations about race and gender inside of congregations? And what's the picture of God that they are um, drawing that brings them out to collect signatures or go to rallies or run a ballot campaign or walk the streets, you know, whatever that was. And was um, really compelled by this question and really inspired by the um, people that I met in Kansas City who were doing that work. Um, and uh, specifically uh, the women, like this was my, it was a multi-faith organization. I was working with um, clergy women who came from Episcopalian and Lutheran and CME and AME and um, Unitarian University, like all of these different traditions, Jewish traditions, who were ordained and coming to our public rallies and our meetings with politicians in their collars and in their robes. And I just thought that was astounding. I'd never been around women in that capacity because I'd grown up in such a Catholic environment. And it really provoked these like gut-wrenching questions for me about what does leadership look like for me in, a, in my faith tradition? It was never a question of, do I leave the Catholic church at the time? It's, sometimes that's, that's a question more and more now. But at the time it wasn't. It was, how do I lead prophetically and how do I lead 
faithfully and deeply in the way that these women are leading inside of my own tradition. I just never considered what women's leadership should look like outside of like, you know, becoming a nun or um, something like that. And so pastoral associate, things like that. And so I remember sitting in mass one Sunday and I went up for the Eucharist and I came back and I sat down and before I was able to kneel, I just had this kind of revelation visited upon me that was like, you need to, you need to go to seminary. You need to ask these questions. And I don't know. It was just a revelation. It was just, I was sitting there. I had just taken in the Eucharist and the spirit was like, Hey, by the way, before you kneel down, (laughs) you should also do this when you leave the church. And, and I followed that up with a discernment retreat to, um, there's a, a monastery not far from here, a couple hours North of Kansas city, um, Benedictine Monastery. And so I was like, well, let me just take a couple days and go do a little self-directed discernment retreat um, to figure out if it's if I need to leave Kansas City and go to a seminary, go to divinity school. And so I went and I did this self-directed retreat. And at one point I had spiritual direction with this um, brother, this monk there, and he was kind of fusty, like he was just a little straight-laced and um, uh, anyway, he was a nice guy, but we're sitting in, in spiritual direction and I'm telling him about this conundrum and, um, or this, not this conundrum, but this question I had, this, this thing that I was discerning. And he did two things for me in that, um, hour. He introduced me to the Ignatian concept of, um, consolation and desolation. This, uh, really beautiful offering from Ignatian spirituality that I still rely on. And he also looked very disapproving when I told him I wanted to go to seminary. And he um, really started to raise questions about, you know, is this a good decision for me as a, as a woman? And I remember being like, you know what? Just because of this look on your face, I'm going. <laughs> I feel consolation seeing how discomfited you are. And I left in a spiritual direction and I was like, great, I got what I was looking for. And I um, went to divinity school and was really, really hungry to pursue this question and started meeting with all of these women, Catholic women who were doing, I met with pastoral associates, I met with canon lawyers, I met with women who are running organizations. Like I wanted to know what are the options for women in leadership in the Catholic church. And I I even traveled abroad and I, thanks to some money from Vanderbilt, and I interviewed some women who had been excommunicated for pursuing ordination um, inside the Catholic tradition because I wanted to know what does that vocation look like and how do you reconcile it with your faith? And asked all of these questions in my first year or so, year and a half. And then, um, and then in August of 2016, um, was it? No, in August, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And you you remember, I'm sure you were there, but it it was close. It's only four hours from where Vanderbilt Divinity School is. And um, I had all these colleagues who, you know, when I was in Kansas City organizing, I was part of a network of people who I was in regular contact with. And all of a sudden, all these colleagues were in Ferguson um, marching and really being like traumatized on a daily basis by this experience, but showing up again and again and again, because they found this new way of being church and this, this radical way of, of um, enacting God's love in these streets and um, with young people, with people of color, with queer people, with women who were leading the way. And these clergy were kind of like taking their collars off and taking a back seat and saying, we're going to follow the leadership of these young organizers. 
Um, and I, then they would, I would hear from them about that. And then they came to Nashville for a training and we all went to go see a screening of Selma, which had just come out. And they were deeply triggered by the scene of the marchers on the bridge confronting the police. Um, and people had to leave the theater and it, there was just such gut-wrenching pain. And I couldn't, it wasn't my pain because I hadn't been in Ferguson with them, but I was, they were my friends and I was there with them. And I just remember after that being, realizing that I had to come back to this work, that that's what my leadership would look like in the church. And that's what my ministry would be, that it had to be justice making and it had to be justice making um, across lines of difference and um, in, in kind of wild and unexpected places. And so I kind of shifted my focus and um, I was still doing pastoral ministry at my parish in Nashville, but I started doing a lot more work around racial justice and racial equity with that parish, which is a predominantly white, fairly affluent parish, um, which was a, its own kind of rewarding and difficult experience. Um, and I reached out to that network and I said, I need to, I want to come back. Like I want us to talk about, I want to, I want to, ask these questions with you and I want to be in these streets with you and I want to be crying in movie theaters um, with you. And so um, they made room for me. So after I graduated, I, I joined this organization, which I had been uh, a local affiliate of when I was in Kansas City. Now I'm on the national team. We're called Faith in Action. We used to be called Pico National Network. It's a multi-faith organization. It was founded by a Jesuit priest. So it's got its roots mm -hmm. in Catholicism, but is now um, very multi-faith. And, um, and we do organizing work across the country and I still work specifically with and around clergy and the ideas and questions related to like, what does it take to, for clergy to exercise a prophetic voice, um, today in this society, um, and with these particular problems. Um, and so that's the work I do now and it's great and it's, different from I think what I expected it to be when I left um, Kansas City originally and, and went to seminary um, but it, it feels right for mm -hmm. at least it feels right for now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that was a very involved that was explanation so I loved it listen though Megan I'm gonna get real with you yeah let's do it let's get real you know Several priests from my tradition have approached you. <laughs> they have. <laughs> this is a like, true story. Like, so this many. is real. Like, Father Rick, and I'm sure Lissa Becca was like, hey, you are called to ordain ministry. Why don't you just come on over yeah. to the Episcopalians? Because I think we're the most similar to Catholicism. Yeah, absolutely. And deeply rooted in the tradition and sacraments and liturgies all there. It feels so similar. Um, but do you ever feel that itch? Like, do you feel the itch of ordained ministry? Do you think this is going to be enough for you? Um, I don't have a definitive answer to that. Um, but it is, it is right now. And, you know, I, when I did that, trip to talk to those ordained women in the Catholic tradition. I was, part of it was, I wanted to hear their stories. The other part of it was, I wanted to know if they could help me tell my story. And, um, and they did, partly because I realized that I, I am not called in the way that they're called right now. Um, 
And that's enough for me. Like, I don't need to be called to ordination. Um, I feel called to the work that I'm doing and the place that I'm in. And I think that there is um, a particular beauty in what it means to devote myself to the sacraments and to devote myself to the communion of the faithful um, as a lay woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the leadership of lay persons is largely unexplored in the Catholic church and mm-hmm. has so much to offer. And so I feel a great privilege um, to be counted among them at this moment. And it's irrational, but I cannot imagine not being Catholic. And I think part of it is because of how central it was to my my sense of self when I was a child. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just all that I had. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I can't imagine walking away from that at this Mm -hmm. point in my life. Now, (laughs) every day I wake up and I have to ask myself, am I Catholic today? Because can I cuss on this podcast? Oh, totally. 100%. Because this is some fucked up shit. <laughs> that is just real. It is just so jacked and it is so evil. And it is so. One of my, I was having um, breakfast or coffee with um, a friend of mine here who's a pastoral associate at a parish here who's just very angry as she has every right to be. Um, and she told me that her brother, her, her family, um, they think that her, she's in like moral peril because she is still a Catholic. And I had not thought about that, but when she raised it, I was like, of course people think we're in moral peril. Like, look at what our, our organization, our institution is doing and how, how far afield we are from who we are supposed to be. And so I, you know, that's a real thing. And I hear, I hear that. And I, um, and I understand why people think that. And the Eucharist and the sacraments are so much bigger and so much grander than, um, than the Catholic churches. And, 100%. um, which doesn't, you know, again, that's irrational because I could have those same Eucharist and those, those same sacraments in the Episcopal church, but I don't know how to walk away from the Catholic church yeah. right now. Yeah. So, that's, that's really what it comes down to. That's fair. That's yeah. Super fair. But I am flattered by all of the invitations. <laughs> We're always open. Doors yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. so open to you and your gifts and talents. But no matter where you use your gifts and talents, you're going to be a massive blessing and value to any, any institution. We just get greedy you know what i'm saying i hope i hope that i'm a, like a massive pain in the ass like that's my goal it's just to be like a real a real jerk in these institutions just accountable someone's got to agree but that's important that's such important work megan i you know what that's what we're going to go on to talk about in a little bit the next part um is one of those very problems um yeah. But, you know, what I was just going to share, when I was at Notre Dame, I fell in love with the sacraments. You know, I grew up a kind of evangelical Methodist kid. And um, when I, you know, took my first couple theology classes and went to Mass the first time, I was like, oh, my God, this is what's been missing from my spirituality. Um, But as a woman, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it, uh, why, why I'd want to join and it was hard for me because I felt so at home. It felt so natural and right and nourishing to my soul. And luckily, you know, I found the Episcopal Church in uh, Divinity School 
to kind of bring it together for me. Cause I just, but I, I, I do sympathize with my Catholic friends who grew up Catholic. I, I understand, I think what it, what that would mean in terms of sacrificing a part of your identity. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's, um, you're helping me realize this and this is by no means an innovative thought, but, um, it is one of the great sorrows of my life that mm. I am not able to invite. I have a lot of queer friends from undergrad and from grad school and from other parts of my life. And I have never felt comfortable inviting them to mass with me mm-hmm. because I, I just can't imagine how it would be a welcoming or um, healing experience because the church has such a complicated and ugly history on LGBT identity and the queer community. Um, and it's a huge source of pain. Um, and I'm realizing, and I mean, that's aside from the issue of being a woman in the Catholic church, which is just right. tribulation, right. <laughs> just a burden. And I'm realizing um, that it is the, the ties I feel to the Catholic community are like, they are no weaker than or less than the ties I feel to my family. Mm-hmm. And um, that just is what it is that I mm-hmm. just as I could not turn my back on my family, even though if they were homophobic or misogynistic, it would I you know, it would pain me that I couldn't invite friends home or that I would have to, you know, constantly be trying to fix this. Um, but you you cannot get rid of your family. And I, you know, remarkably cannot get rid of how Catholic I am. Like mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. that is as much a part of me as the blood that runs through my veins. And so mm-hmm. um, there's just no, there's just no walking away from that. Yeah. Real quickly to wrap this up, talk to me about how you feel about Sophia and what she's meant to you or imaging goddess female. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, would, I respond more to imaging goddess as female. I don't think as much as I should about Sophia, but I like that. Um, so I've been I've I've adopted this practice recently in the last mm, couple of years where I every time I refer to God now I refer to God as she or her, mm-hmm. um, and this is a pretty you know regular practice for for feminists I think or for folks who are committed to this. But I've started to realize that when I do that, it also changes like the way that I phrase the thing that I'm saying about God. Mm. So um, because we have because I have a different um, understanding of what God is like when she is, when she has more feminine qualities. And mm-hmm. so when I talk about God now and I'm having to remind, and it's still a thing I have to remind myself to do. Like there's a switch in my mind that has to say, say she, not he, you know, as opposed to like, if I were just saying he, it would just rattle out. But that, that also then changes the sentence I'm saying. So instead of saying like, God told me, she told me to do this, or she told me in this, dream or whatever I'm now saying like she invited me Mm. or she welcomed me in this way and Mm. like the the language is shifting from this like kind of um commanding Mm -hmm. authoritarian to much more like um uh just softer is such a loaded word but like um power with instead of power over yeah yeah yeah, you know and so even the way so so that's what's been so beautiful to me I think a lot about power in the context of my job as a organizer and working with clergy trying to marshal social Mm -hmm. political power and um for me the the 
kind of enduring gift of imaging goddess female is that it it demands that we renegotiate the kind of power and we redefine the kind of power that God wields, the way we understand the power that God wields in our lives. So not that God is like this traffic cop kind of like directing things and making things happen in a certain way, but God is companion, God is friend, God is mother, God is womb. I'm thinking a lot about like what it means for darkness to be a source of like creation, right? Like a womb. Mm-hmm. Um, what means for, for God to be with us and um, near us and invite us and welcome us and usher us, but not push, shove, tell, mm-hmm. demand, command, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things. And so, um, and I find that when I do that, even the way that I talk, to, even when I'm not talking about God, um, the way that I talk to the people around me changes. Like mm-hmm. I find myself invite, you know, just, just bringing in that same kind of um, cooperation and um, community and um, companionship, that ethos into my relationships with my friends and my family and my coworkers. Um, so it's just been a really invaluable practice. And I also, um, it's, uh, it's also become a source of solace uh, in the midst. I know we're going to talk about the, you know, what's going on with the Catholic church shortly, but like in the midst of um, all of how hard it is to be Catholic right now and to feel close to um, the mass and to the Catholic community. um, It has helped me in the face of our overwhelming like maleness, like our toxic masculinity that's, um, to hold God close to me as, um, as, as woman, or it really just as not male, <laughs> as anything but a man, um, as gender queer, as, as whatever right. our God may be, um, but as decisively kind of putting aside the toxicity of, of, um, the way that we do masculinity today mm-hmm. and embracing a much more integrated, um, like, way of being among us and so I've I've been holding on a lot I had a conversation a couple weeks ago about Eve and Mary and um and these kind of manifestations of divinity or of God's favor in the world and Mm. it was so healing in a way that talking about religion today can feel so taxing Mm -hmm. being able to talk about women of faith um Mm. and Sophia as it were is just such a grace, a, 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 a thing of grace right now. Thanks again, Megan, for joining me on the podcast this week. Your work and your voice is so, so important in the world and in the church. I'm so proud of you for being who God calls you to be. And watching you continue to live into that is such a beautiful thing, my friend. Join us next week as Megan and I take on the U.S. Catholic Church's issues with clergy sex abuse. Make sure to follow Theosophia on iTunes and all the social media platforms and consider donating to Theosophia on our Patreon page. See y'all next week. Peace.